My name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Harbour City, and we're carrying on a series um, on calling at the moment, exploring kind of what God has called each of us to do, purpose in life, all of that kind of stuff. And I do want to start this morning just with a bit of a guilty confession, which might make you not want to invite Shell and I around for dinner or lunch or anything like that. Sorry, I didn't clear this with Shell, but um, I love going into a new home and snooping. Now, I mean that in like a nice way, like not a going through your cupboards or drawers and trying to find out your secrets and... I don't know, crossing any lines or invading your privacy at all. But I love just kind of exploring and just seeing the things that are up in people's homes, which tell you so much about them and their life and what they're about in history and all of that stuff. And um, I think you just can learn a lot about a person from their house. So Shell and I were at Tom and Courtney's on Friday night. I don't think they're here today, so I can say whatever I want about them. <laughs> but we had a lovely meal with them, and it was just good catching up. But probably as we spoke, and it was really scintillating conversation, um, if you know them, they are wonderful, smart, uh, interesting people to spend time with. But I was just loving looking around their home and just seeing some of the different things they had on their walls and shelves and all of that. For instance, uh, they both love poetry, and they've written these incredible love poems to one another. The one is on the wall next to their dining room table, the other's kind of on one of their shelves. And reading through those, I just got a, a deeper glimpse into who they uh, are. On top of that, next to one of those poems is a beautiful um, map of South Africa that Courtney gave to Tom for one of their anniversaries, where she's sewn um, with red thread kind of the road trips they've done around the country into the map so that they can remember those trips and those moments they've shared together. Then they've got beautiful paintings on their walls, some photos up on their fridge of different moments of their lives. So Shell and I were honored. We're one of the pictures there um, from when we were in their old flat having dinner probably two years ago. There's pictures from their wedding day, pictures of many of you, pictures of Tom in the bath on a honeymoon. It's a bubble bath, so it's not too revealing. But he's having a glass of wine, and he just looks like Lord Mike having the time of his life. But they also love books. So I was looking around their house, and I limited myself to just borrowing one book from Tom and Courtney, Empire by Niall Ferguson. I'm really excited to get into it. But it's really interesting seeing the things that people have up on their bookshelves, because this is what they want to read, or have invested hours and hours into reading to learn or understand more from. And I remember about 12 years ago, it's so weird that I remember this book so distinctly, but I was house-sitting for a friend of mine named Phil Kendon, went into a study, I was just looking through his bookshelf, and he had a book up on that shelf called The Making of the Man of God. The Making of the Man of God. And I probably like flipped through it a little bit, I don't know if I read it or not, but um, it just struck me, that idea that God is making you and I into the people that he wants us to be the man or the woman, called to a specific purpose and plan. And if God is making, that means he's nearby. He's intimately involved in our lives. And he is like the potter with the clay, shaping and forming us into the people that he wants us to be for the purpose that he's got for our lives. God is intimately involved with our lives because he loves us and he cares about us. And he's got exciting things for us to do. The other thing that means is that through the ups and downs of life, the hard and easy, the fun and not so fun parts of life, God is there. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He is with us, and even in those moments, he's working in our lives to form us into the people that he's called us to be. And this morning, what I want us to do as we carry on in this calling series is look a little bit at how this works, how the processes of God work in our lives, how God shapes us into the people he's called us to be. So we're going to be looking at Joseph's life today. You can turn to Genesis 37 if you do have a Bible with you. Otherwise, you're welcome to Google it or just listen as I read. But before we get into that text, I've asked Mr. Eugene Schlaupe to come up. 
I don't know where on earth he is, but um, I've asked him to, oh, there you go. I've asked him to come up a little bit and just share with us in terms of some of his story of, um, I guess, the processes of God in his life. So if you don't know Eugene, he's been part of this church since day one. He often is up here leading worship. He leads one of our small groups or life groups, meets midweek. And I've known him for probably just over 10 years. He is a teacher at Dustin Hook High. He is a sculptor, an artist, a dancer, very creative man. Uh, but at the same time, he's also walked through quite a bit of suffering and hardship in his life, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. So I know as Eugene and I have spoken about some of that, it seemed very much like the story of Joseph and the story of Eugene have a big overlap. So Mr. Schlopper, are you ready to speak to the church? Once for once. <laughs> Can you briefly tell us a little bit about your Joseph experience last year? What happened? What did you go through? What was the story? Sure. Um, Okay. It was about a year ago. Um, I was falsely accused for an assault, SGH, and spent two nights locked up and released on bail. It was the most painful events of my life, and I lost my given plasma TV to my accuser, who claimed that I had beaten him up severely mm. and had a doctor's note to file a case against me. So, mm. yeah. So you were falsely accused and thrown into jail. Basically, yes. So I remember a number of us going to visit you at that holding cell in Hillcrest, and you were ashen, like it looked like. I don't know, the color had gone out of your skin. You looked um, distraught, obviously. How did you feel? Like, that experience was obviously massive for you. Can you tell us what you went through, both at the time that you were locked up, but even over the weeks following as you had, um, I guess, to go to court and fight for your freedom? I think, like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to be as short as possible. But I... I saw my whole world shutting down, and I felt disconnecting from everything. Um, and in my head, like I saw and felt that like I was definitely going to be closer to God at some point going through that. So I was fearful, um, headful, and suicidal. What else? Yeah, I felt completely out of control. I felt like my life was ruined and over with. So today was not guaranteed at all. (laughs) Yeah, you you thought you might spend the rest of your life in jail. Yeah, yeah, because the story, like, of people being falsely accused and spending and serving a lifetime in jail even is typical, and you can never really prove your innocence if someone has really brought down a very good convincing story against you. Mm. So that was a year ago. We're just over a year since then. Um, We believe that God can work all things together for the good, but in your experience, going from, like you said, suicidal, uh, hopeless, feeling out of control, how has God been at work in your life in the last year? Okay. Um, One of the biggest things I've seen in my life is that, like, um, I like to put it this way, that God has worked um, this little muscle lump in my heart, <laughs> or called a heart, uh, for for himself, just like um, drawing me closer to him 
and drawing me closer to trusting in him and relying on him. Because um, I honestly believe that there are a lot of things that happen out of our control and we can never uh, fully comprehend or understand or be in full control of our lives. And the moment we start to do that, it's the moment we tend to worry a lot. The more we get even more depressed, the more our life just shrink and we become like a full stop. Uh, in a sense. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's one thing to just like let go of the control and knowing that good, sorry, bad things do happen to good people. And whether you do have questions or you don't, you will. And some of them won't be answered. Some mm -hmm. of them you will find answers to. Some you look back and, and see what God has done through the process. But it's still a journey and it's heavy. But at the same time, God's peace is guaranteed. I can guarantee you that. Mm. So what would you say to someone? Because obviously we might not be facing the same situation you faced, but I'm sure there are other people going through tough things at the moment or who will face tough things in the next while. Um, and I think for many people, people are struggling with hopelessness at the moment. Is there anything you would say to the church, any advice you would give to someone going through a tough time to try and encourage them? Yeah. Probably what I could say, looking back at my story, is that like... <laughs> As I've mentioned, that the future was not guaranteed. And it's okay to feel hopeless. It's okay to feel the way you do if you're feeling depressed or worried or feel like, well, I don't have all of this together and whatever. It's okay to go through those feelings because they're natural. But what I could say again is that like, that's leaning on God or trusting in God is the most powerful and beautiful thing. And it's a gift, actually. Because even when you don't, but God's spirit in you is able to hold you up together to trust in him even mm -hmm. some more. Because you will run out of strength to trust in God. Uh, I mean, what I was going through, I was honestly, I was just a breath away, just a breath away in seeing my life just being shattered. So I could, like, I relate to pain a lot more different than I did before. Um, and yeah, it's a matter of just trusting in God and being surrounded by community as well also helps in affirming that in you and making you stronger in trusting in Him. But it was, it's okay. Mm. Why don't you pray for us, Mr. Schlopin? just the different people in the room, what they're facing. Why don't you pray for us from, I guess, the well of what God has done in your life? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this morning. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you, God, for your power. We thank you, God, for your love. We thank you, God, that you are an amazing God. Mm. We thank you, God, that you are good at being God, and you've been God a long time. And we thank you, God, that you actually your your existence is like of the sun, whether it's dark on earth or it's a sunny day. But you are always our God, and mm. you are always existing. So whether we go through tough, emotional, heavy moments of our lives. 
we thank you that you are God and you're still existing and you're still in control. Although we may not fully understand what you are doing, fully understand the processes that we are going through, but we thank you, God, that we can trust in you. So this morning, I pray, God, for individuals, God, who are feeling depressed, who are feeling lonely, who are feeling hateful, that, God, you will come and summon them with your presence and summon them with your peace, God, and fill them with your love, God. I pray, God, for faith to arise. I pray for restoration to take place, God. I pray, God, that you will work all things for good because it's in your nature, God. You cause everything, God, Mm. to be good within us. So we trust in you, God, this morning that you will turn the bitter into sweet. And it's someday we will sing and we will continue to sing your praises and love people and love you. Mm. Amen. Amen. I just thought one last thing, which would be great to do, is win a series on calling. Um, and obviously when you were in that space, your dreams were dying, your hope was dying. What is the, the call of God in your life? What is the dream God's placed in you, Mr. Shlope? Sure. Um, <laughs> so one, one of the most beautiful things, actually, um, which is quite scary as well at the same time, was God said to me, well, I felt it at, at the time, saying, you are my son, or my beloved son. So he affirmed me at a place where people lose identity. Uh, and from that point, not only he did that, but also um, that felt he spoke, he spoke strongly on probably three things that I can remember. One is like um, the worshiping and prayer and probably down the line being a pastor that I know that at some point in my life, definitely <laughs> I will do but also, <laughs> but also, uh, for now, as far as my lens can see it, I think music and art is where I'm at currently. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so those would be, I don't know. <laughs> well, I just thought it would be great to pray for this man. Let's pray for him just for the call of God in his life. So Lord, just as um, Eugene has shared like the story he's walked through, which is so real, and just the thought of being in his shoes is very intimidating, Lord. I just pray that you'd fill him with your spirit and empower him and lead him. We just thank you that those dreams don't have to die, but that you're going to fulfill them through his life. So would you bless him? Would you give him opportunities? And would you use him to do the things you've called him to do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Why don't you give him a round of applause? That was awesome. So if you don't know the story of Joseph, you'll see maybe in a little bit uh, why it seems like Eugene's story and Joseph's story tie in so clearly. But in the scriptures, we meet Joseph in Genesis chapter 30 as a little baby. And if you skip a little bit ahead to Genesis 37, we're introduced to this man again. He's 17 years old. He's a shepherd. He's working for his father and working with his brothers. He's in a bit of a family business, if that is the situation you find yourself into. But there's more to the story. And in Genesis 37 verse 3, It tells us this a little bit more. Now Israel, or Jacob, who is Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. That's a big red flag. That's a problem. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors, a second red flag. Like, he's getting special treatment. His dad is buying him special clothes. He's not being treated the same as the other sons. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. 
and could not speak peacefully to him. Another red flag. This family's got problems. And imagine Joseph going to his brothers, maybe naive and innocent, trying to chat to them, and they're just like, what do you want? What do you want to talk to us about? Get out of here, like small fry. We don't want to talk to you at all. Joseph is born into a dysfunctional family. And I want to say that because maybe you've been born into a dysfunctional family too. Joseph's dad doesn't really know what he's doing in terms of parenting. He's not loving his boys well. He's not fathering them well. He's actually creating disunity and division in his own family by the way he's doing things. And it's causing Joseph to be hurt because he's rejected. And it's causing the others to be hurt because they don't feel loved and affirmed well. And the story carries on in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. This is the call of God being birthed in his life. God giving him a picture of what he's going to do in the future. Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf stood and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Another red flag. (laughs) This is getting quite problematic. And you can almost imagine him doing this kind of naively with a smile on his face afterwards saying, crazy, hey guys, what a weird dream. (laughs) Meanwhile, his brothers are getting more and more furious with him. They hate this guy. And now he's coming to them with this arrogant dream or story of them bowing down to honor him. So they reply like this, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he decides to tell it again. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Now he's getting like, I don't know, stratospheric. The sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, even his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His father's indignant. And his brothers were jealous of him, but interestingly, his father kept the saying in mind. If you were to make a story about the life of Joseph, this would be his origin story. This is Joseph Begins. This is the environment that he's growing up in and some of the things that are shaping him for the man he's going to be and the call of God on his life. And I think we look at this and we can think to ourselves, why Joseph? You know, he's the spoiled brat in the family who seems to think a lot of himself. He's the guy who gets the coat. He's the guy who's his father's favorite. Why does God choose him? And we've got this kind of merit scale thing going through our minds. Because so often we believe this lie that actually if we do good things, then God will bless us in a good way. You know, so if we're good people, if we're moral people, if we serve God, if we honor God well, then all the good things in life that we want, the blessing is going to come upon us. So we get the coat and we get the dream and we get our father's love or whatever it might be for you. Maybe a promotion at work or a little bit more money or answered prayer or something you want. You know, if we're good, then we'll get the good blessings of God. And conversely, we've got this thought in our mind, if bad things are happening to us, if we're going through hardship, if we're suffering, if we're struggling, then God obviously disapproves of us. He's not happy with us. God is displeased with our lives. And if that's you today, I want to say that is not true. That is not the way God works at all. God freely gives us good things by his grace. And in his sovereign choice, he chose Joseph for this specific call, not because of anything he had done, but because of God's wisdom and thought. And in Genesis 37, this call of God is birthed in Joseph's life. He has a dream. 
But I think for many of us in this room, probably the question we're asking is, how do we get from calling to fulfillment? You know, For some of us, we don't know what the calling is yet, or we're starting to, or God has been speaking to us at the moment, or we've almost shelved the call because it's been so long and it doesn't seem to be happening. For many of us, we are younger. Maybe we're thinking, well, I'm here now. How do I get to the end of my life and fulfill the things that God has called me to do? And as we look at the story today, I think you will get a bit of a better idea. When Shell and I um, got married about seven years ago, we came back uh, from honeymoon to a bit of a tough family situation. We'd found out just before our wedding that Shell's dad had lung cancer, which was obviously quite shocking news. It was a tough way to go into um, a wedding. And we got back from honeymoon and basically went straight to the hospital to see her dad. And we didn't know at that time that we had about two weeks left at the most with him, a couple more visits before he would be gone. But we went to St. Augustine's. We actually went to the wrong hospital. <laughs> we went to Hillcrest Hospital and then to St. Augustine's. And we came and we met Shell's dad and mom in this cafeteria downstairs. And we all had something to drink in this conversation. I remember Shell's dad loved us so much. This was a big thing for him was us. So he had this cold Coke and we sat and we spoke. And it really felt like one of those things you read in the Bible where like this older patriarch, like you see at the end of Genesis, is speaking to his children and blessing them. And basically, he asked us about our dream. Like, what do we see for the future? What is the dream God has put on our hearts? What is the call of God for us? And we shared this with John, sitting at the table. And we shared, I guess, our hopes and dreams, what we thought God had called us to. But we also shared all the question marks, like the concerns, the things we didn't know, the doubts that we had. And he encouraged us incredibly. It really did feel like a father's blessing for the future that we were going to live in together. And he said this one phrase, which I think will stick with me for life. He's quoting Isaiah 46 verse 10 that says that God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. And I think as we go to Joseph's story or any of the callings in the scriptures, what often happens is God speaks the dream, the future, the promise, the call, what is to come long before the journey is known, you know. So we step into the unknown, not knowing how we're going to get there, but God has given this clear picture of what is to come because God knows the end from the beginning. There's a number of characters that we could look at in the Bible to see this, but I think Abraham is a really interesting man because he's a man who is older in life. He hasn't been able to have kids. Him and his wife just haven't been there, barren, but God has promised them a child. So they've lived in this tension of, well, God, you've said this, but we haven't walked into that. Not only that, but God starts to speak to them about their descendants being as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. And not only that, but through them, all the people of the earth will be blessed. That's the dream. That's the picture God has given to them. But it's years and years and years of walking towards that without anything being fulfilled. And he does need to walk. He needs to carry on life. He needs to trust God and walk by faith. There's this verse that's always struck me about Abraham's call in Hebrews 11 verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, which is a massive part dealing with our relationship with God and our calling. He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So we've got the dream, this picture that God gives of your descendants being as many as the sand and the stars and blessing the whole world through them and going into Canaan, the promised land, Israel. But now he says, I want you to leave not knowing where you're going. And Abraham has to just begin the walk, trusting God into the unknown. And it's the same for many of us. 
God knows the end from the beginning, and he gives us a picture of what is to come, but we don't know how we're going to get there or walk into all that God has got for us. And this is certainly true in Joseph's story. In Genesis 37, the call of God is birthed in Joseph's life, and then in the next few verses, what we see is everything that he has known has been stripped from him. You know, the, the coat that he had, the family he had, the blessing of his father, this favor being the favorite. He's actually taken by his brothers who've been plotting to kill him, and he's beaten up. They decide, listen, we're going to let him go. They throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery to these Midianite traders who come past, and he's taken into Egypt as a slave. He's lost his home, he's lost his family, he's lost what he's known, he's lost what's comfortable. His entire life has been torn from him, and now he's in this unknown land. You can imagine Joseph thinking, well, God gave me a dream. God spoke to me about the future. God put this call on my life. Obviously, I was wrong. Now, obviously, that was me. I was just naive and arrogant and thought maybe God could use me in this way, or maybe it was something I ate, or maybe it was something else. But now, seeing that I'm a slave in Egypt, there's no ways that God could do what I thought he would do with my life. And Joseph goes into Potiphar's house, and he starts out as a servant. That's all one chapter. And then in Genesis 39, verse 2 to 4, we see the favor of God on Joseph's life while he's a slave in this house. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Rags to riches story. Joseph is now at the top. He's running his master's business. And what happens next is his brothers come to Egypt, and they apologize for what they've done, and they make right, and they bow down to him. And then the end shows up on the screen, and the credits roll, and the lights come on, and the music plays. That's the Disney version of the story. You know, one kind of struggle, and all of a sudden, Joseph's back up at the top. But Joseph gets to this place where he's at the top of part of his home. He's running his businesses. He's trusted completely. And then we have another twist. In verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused. So Joseph is a righteous man, a godly man. He wants to serve God. He wants to honor God with his life. And he's doing really well in his new master's business. And all of a sudden, his master's wife has got the hots for him. And she keeps coming after him again and again. It's sexual harassment in the workplace. That's what's going on for Joseph. (laughs) Don't know why you're laughing about that, you guys. Um, But basically, it gets to this point where um, she comes after him and she says, enough is enough. And she strips Joseph's cloak from him, and he runs naked out of the house to get away. It's a crazy situation. When Joseph won't do what she wants, she screams, she accuses him of attempted rape, and he is put in prison, he is jailed, he's falsely accused, just like Eugene. He goes to jail knowing that he's an innocent man, knowing that he's a godly man, knowing that the person who has said this about him is lying, but now he finds himself in a prison cell. He's been enslaved, and now he's in prison. I just want to go back for a second because I think there's a really important like, thing to note here. Why does Joseph not go back for that cloak? <laughs> you know, when she strips the cloak from him and he runs naked from the house, you think, this does not look good. <laughs> you know, Any of the servants, any of the family, any friends who maybe see Joseph running from the house naked are going to think something's been going on. And not only that, now she's got evidence that Joseph was in the house, he was naked, she's got the clothes, it looks really, really bad. Why does he not go back? 
I think perhaps Joseph was under intense temptation at that time. Can you imagine for this young man, we don't know his story, we don't know the detail, maybe a hot-blooded young man. He's been tempted by this woman again and again. He said, no, 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 he's tempted. He would love to, but he knows it's not right. He knows this wouldn't honor God. He knows this wouldn't honor his boss. And this moment comes, we don't know what Potiphar's wife is wearing or if she was wearing anything at all, but she strips the clothes from him and Joseph runs off. Got to think to ourselves, was it perhaps that he didn't go back because he thought, if I go back, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I can take the cloak and go, I don't know if I'm going to fall into something here, into adultery, sleep with this woman. Who knows what could happen, but I could dishonor God in that moment. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, it says, flee sexual immorality. In Harbor City, we live in a world where sexual immorality is rife. It's everywhere. I really want to encourage every single one of us and the lives we live and the places we go, the things we do, don't think you're stronger. Don't think that you can resist temptation. Don't think that you are not weak. Don't think it couldn't be you. Run. The mature thing is not to stay and grin and bear it and just try and work it out. Run. If there's a moment of sexual temptation, run for your life. That's what Joseph did, despite the consequences. So Joseph is put in prison, and he's falsely accused of attempted rape. Another huge black mark on the story of his life. And it says in Genesis 39, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. It's an amazing thing. No matter what he goes through, the Lord is with him in that moment. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And again, Joseph ascends. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison, prison. the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with them, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's kind of a good news, bad news story that's going on. It's like now you're the chief of the prison, but you're still a prisoner. Like now your warden trusts you with absolutely everything. You've got free reign, but still you're not free to do whatever you want. Kind of good news, bad news going on. And while all of this is going on and Joseph's got this favor in prison, he starts to make some new friends, particularly the uh, king's chief cupbearer and the king's baker. And these two men are his friends, and they share one day about this dream that God has given both of them, two different dreams, and they're wondering what they mean. And what I think is amazing about Joseph is he thinks, actually, maybe God would speak to me that I could interpret these dreams. Now listen, not every dream that you have is a prophetic dream or comes from God. It could be the movie you watch, something you're processing in your mind, the food you ate. But some dreams are prophetic. Some dreams are from God. And always God is wanting to speak to us. So we don't actually know if Joseph has ever done this before. Like there's nowhere in Genesis where Joseph is just interpreting dreams or teaching others how to do this. But he knows God. And he knows what God is like, and he knows that God wants to speak to us. And I think he's in a situation like this, where he thinks to himself, well, if God is speaking, God would probably use someone like me to help these guys out to know what God wants to say. Joseph is a man who knows God and believes God, that God is at work in every situation. And when he sees something like this, he thinks, let me join God in what he is doing there. This isn't in a church service or a life group. This is in prison. And for each one of us in our daily lives, wherever we are, God is at work doing certain things. Be so great for us to think, what if I join God in what he's doing in that situation and believe that actually maybe the spirit of God wants to speak or work through you to touch other people's lives. So Joseph steps out. He's able to interpret the dreams. God tells him what they mean. And the one man, sadly, is being warned that he will die in three days. The other man is restored to his place as the chief's king cupbearer. 
And when he goes back to the king, Joseph says, please remember me. Please tell the king about me. I'm innocent. I didn't do this thing. Tell him about the man I've been in prison, how I interpreted your dreams. Please set me free. And the guy says, of course, Joseph, you've saved my life. You've helped me out. You've interpreted the dream. You've been such a good friend. I will tell Pharaoh about you and you'll be set free. But in the excitement of being released, the king's cupbearer goes back to his normal life, goes back to his home and his family, goes back to the king, so stoked to be with the king again. And in no time, he's forgotten about Joseph. You can imagine Joseph... This is finally it, you know? I've gone through all of these struggles, being beaten up, sold as a slave. I've been in prison. I've been falsely accused. But now I'm going to be free. Finally, I can live the life that God has given me to live. He packs his bags. He's ready. He's waiting for that prison guard just to come and tap on the cell and say, you're free. Pharaoh set you free. You're no longer guilty. You can go. And one day becomes two days, becomes three, becomes a week, becomes two weeks, becomes a month, becomes two years. I don't know how Joseph felt, but I can imagine almost like Eugene, there was a hopelessness, there was a fear, there was feeling out of control. Like, God, there's nothing I can do. Like, I just can't help myself. I'm stuck. Maybe he was suicidal. Maybe he was depressed. Maybe he was shaking his fist at God saying, where are you, God? Why don't you care? Why aren't you helping me in any of this stuff? For two whole years. Until someone comes and knocks on his cell and says, Pharaoh has had a dream and we're looking for someone to interpret it. It's quite an amazing story. The Pharaoh has this dream. It's God speaking to him about what is to happen to the nation of Egypt and to the surrounding countries. It's a dream about famine and um, a drought that is coming. And it's really a warning and a sign to prepare and begin to get ready for what is to come. And he gets all of the magicians and wise men and anyone he thinks could maybe interpret this dream for him to come and stand before Pharaoh. And no one can do it. Everyone's stuck. And the cupbearer finally realizes, oh yeah, Joseph, my old mate, maybe he can come and help in this situation. And he does. Joseph comes, God speaks to him, he shares what the dream means, he interprets it, and he puts a plan together for Pharaoh in terms of what he should do. And Pharaoh gets so excited. Genesis 41 verse 38, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Like that would be an amazing thing if your boss or someone said of you, you know, you meet this person and they're like, the spirit of God is clearly in you. You are amazing. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will you be great, will I be greater than you. He's just met Joseph. <laughs> that seems like a crazy like leap of trust. It's almost like Eugene was still in Kwandengezi holding cell or Hillcrest holding cell, and he's able to serve someone there, maybe interpret a dream, share an encouragement, and that person happens to go to Sil Ramaphosa, and he's stuck in a really tricky situation, and he says, you know what? I know you've got all of these advisors, but Eugene Schlope is this guy that I met while I was in this holding cell. What if you bring him to see if he could advise you? And next thing you know, Eugene is sharing something that is from God, that is helping Mr. Ramaphosa, President Ramaphosa, and helps him to know what to do and to plan for the future and to lead our country into a new season. It's such a crazy thought to think that God could do that, but he does. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. He gives him clothes and a ring and authority and power and a car and everything he needs, company car, and he steps into this new role. Verse 46 Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So I thought about that, 17 years old as a shepherd boy, kind of beaten up by his brothers and sold into slavery, 30 years old, now stepping into this new role, the call of God on his life. He's had 13 years of just ups and downs and disappointments and despair and hopelessness and confusion. Where are you, God, let down by people, not knowing what's going on? 13 years of questioning and suffering and praying and confusion and depression and frustration and doubt. Joseph starts out as a shepherd. He becomes a slave. He becomes chief of part of his house. Next thing, he's falsely accused and he finds himself in prison. Gets his hopes up as he interprets dreams. Then his dreams are shattered. Doesn't know where God is. Next thing, he's standing before Pharaoh interpreting dreams. And out of nowhere, he walks into the call of God that's on his life. Doesn't seem like a straightforward A to B process. Hey, <laughs> walk into what God wants for him. But I want to ask you, if you trust God with the process that he has got you in. You trust God with your life and the processes that he's walking you through. Eugene quoted it earlier, but Romans 8 verse 28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think that those words, all things, kind of trip us up. We're like, ah, some things, maybe most things, a lot of things. But here Paul's intentionally saying all things. God works all things together for the good. So I looked that up in the Greek. The word is the word pas, P-A-S. It means all, any, every, the whole, always, as many, as thoroughly, whatsoever, whosoever. Absolutely anything you have ever faced, face now, or will face in the future. All things he works together for the good. All things means all things. And that means that whatever you are facing now, whatever you face, whatever you will face, you know that God is there, he's involved, and he will work that thing together for the good. And I'm saying that not to undermine your difficulty. I, I realize you could be going through a situation now that we can't imagine that is far harder than anything I've ever been through. But I say it because the Bible is true. The Bible is God's word. No matter what you are facing, God is able to work all things together for your good and for your benefit and your blessing. I realize some of you might be wrestling with suffering at the moment. John Stott is a well-known pastor, he passed away a few years ago, but very, very influential. And he said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain and suffering and hurt and disappointment and depression and all of the things we're talking about today, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? What he's saying is that in our suffering, we do not serve a God who can't relate. We serve a God who has suffered. We serve a God who has experienced pain. We serve a God who has gone through so much. God knows what it's like. On the cross, God experienced what it's like to lose a child. On the cross, Jesus experienced the weight of the sin, shame, and guilt of the world. Everything that has ever happened, Jesus carried the weight of that. On the cross, Jesus knew the pain of being rejected, of not being loved or chosen or accepted. Jesus knew the pain of being judged and falsely accused, and we could go on and on and on. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. God knows the pain that we have gone through. And that means that the cross is good news for us because through the cross and what Jesus has done, you can be forgiven of your sin and washed clean and have a new relationship with God. If you don't know Jesus today, you can begin a journey of following him this morning. And whatever you've done in the past can be completely washed away and you can have a new start. But it doesn't just mean that. 
It also means that when we suffer, when we go through hardship or pain or disappointment, we can go to God, our rock, who can empathize with us. He's been in our shoes. He has compassion because he has been through these things too. And he has got infinite wisdom and care and grace and resources to meet you and your need in that space. God is good and we can trust him. And the story of Joseph ends with the dream being fulfilled. What God spoke to him about when he was 17 years old, now as a 30-year-old, as famine kind of breaks through the nations, his family find their way to Egypt looking for help because they don't have food or sustenance or the things they need. And not even knowing that it is Joseph in front of them, who is now the two I see to Pharaoh, maybe the most powerful man in the world, they bow down on their hands and knees and ask him for help. You know what's kind of crazy about this? That's not how we would join the dots. Like, we would not write Joseph's story that way, and we would not choose that story for ourselves. There's that old saying, like it was used in some of the Nissan adverts back in the day, life's a journey, enjoy the ride, you know? That does not sound like Joseph's story. I don't think any of us would want to go through life like this, experience the things that he's faced. But I think part of what the story is saying is perhaps Joseph needed all these twists and turns. Perhaps he needed all of these ups and downs and the things that he went through because God was at work in the process to prepare him and form him to be the man that he needed to be when the opportunity came for him to play the role that God had called him to play. C.S. Lewis, a, a really famous Christian thinker, says, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. It's a really hard phrase to accept, the, the gift of suffering. I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men and women. The blows of his chisel, which hurt so much, are what make us perfect. When Joseph finally reveals to his brothers who he is, I don't know how you would handle it if that was you in that situation. You know, you've had 13 years, maybe a little bit more, to deal with this. Their betrayal, their rejection, them beating you up, them plotting to kill you, conspiring, selling you into slavery, not caring what happens to you, lying to your parents and telling you you were dead, putting blood on your coat so that it looks like you've been, I don't know, torn apart by a wild animal. He could have done whatever he wanted. He was the second most powerful man in the world. (laughs) You think about it, he could have like literally been licking his chops like, (laughs) they don't know what they're in for, you know, now that they're here. I'm going to kill them, but not quickly. You know, I'm not just going to execute them or behead them. They're going to be slowly flayed and tortured by the most skilled torturers in all of the world. I'm going to make sure that they suffer and know that you don't mess with Joseph. He could have done that. Like the bitterness and hurt and pain that he's been through could have been something now like, ah, what has defined me for so long, I'm going to get my revenge. But Joseph isn't defined by those things. And Joseph says this, Genesis 50 verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I just want to clarify one thing before we close. The beatings, the rejection, the plot to kill Joseph, all of that stuff was not God's will, okay? The injustice he experienced in part of his house, the sexual harassment, uh, being lied about, the false accusation, that was not God's will. That is not what God wanted for Joseph's life. Sin, evil, difficulties, injustice, wickedness, hardships, all of that stuff, they are not God's will for you and for us. 
They are a result of sin and Satan and our brokenness and the brokenness of this world and the evil that exists on this earth. But God is so good. He uses the sin and brokenness and evil and injustice that we experience and have experienced and will experience and that is all around us. He uses it for the good. Because he works all things together for the good. He uses it for our good to strengthen us and grow us to be the people he's called us to be. Joseph had been matured and prepared and trained through his suffering for this moment. And now he finds himself in it, not bitter, but grateful to God for the process that he's been through. I was reading a devotional this last week. It's a devotional through the book of Proverbs written by Tim Keller. And in it, there was this quote which struck me so hard. It says, Trusting in the Lord means obeying his will, whether we like it or not. And I think a lot of us who at least have been in church for a while, we're like, okay, trusting in the Lord means obeying his will, whether we like it or not. I get it. But the second part's a little bit tougher. It says, but there is a second aspect of trusting in the Lord. It means accepting what he allows to come into our lives, whether we understand it or not. I struggle with that. Accepting what God allows to come into our lives, you know, whether we understand it or not. That's a deep truth. And for 13 years plus of walking through the processes of God, of many ups and downs, many disappointments and hurts and much pain, Joseph gets to this point where he's able to speak to his brothers, his betrayers, and to say to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I want to ask you today, as you walk with God, maybe today you want to start that journey. We would absolutely celebrate that with you today. But as we continue to walk with him, Will you trust him through the ups and downs of life? Will you trust him in the darkness? Will you remember what he spoke in the light when you're going through the hardest, darkest, toughest parts of your life? Will you trust him as Joseph did? Chris, can I ask you to come up and share that word that you had? Brains, can I? Just in our pre-service prayer meeting, Chris just shared something that she felt for some of us this morning, which I think is super relevant. There are a lot of people when you stand up here. Hello? Um, it's a, just a scripture in Genesis, um, and it's the Lord speaking to Abram. But I just felt this morning in the light of us, this series and talking about the calling that there are actually people who are feeling quite downcast and depressed even. And when you hear about this, oh, the calling on your life, you actually can't even like, look up to past where you're at, you know, um, to think about God's call in my life. And... Um, and I just felt this morning that he would say this to, to us or to those who are, feel like they're in that place. Um, he says this to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And I just felt like God, like the picture I had was God's with his outstretched arm. And um, just saying, just look up. I just felt like some heads just looking down and just, just God said, just look up and you'll see. You'll see me with my arm and take it mm-hmm. and, and arise and I will take you out of this place that you're in. And as Grant was saying, it's not like now you're in the land of milk and honey, but to start the journey of walking. I just felt like some people were just stuck in this place of despair and depression and down.